0: All you guys are here at Battlefield, great to see you guys this morning. Those of you that are watching online, we just love having you as a part of our online uh, service as well. You know, it is graduation time, so we have folks graduating from high school, folks graduating from college. My youngest son will graduate next year, we're hoping. and uh, like he's like, So as everybody's kind of getting all their graduation stuff together, he's like, you know, next year when I graduate, he said, you take me on a trip anywhere I want to go, so I-, I got some options. And so he's emailing me. So he said, we'll go on a fishing trip. I going to go on a fishing trip. I'm like, yeah, nobody loves to fish better than me, so that's super cool. I'm in wherever you want to go. And so he, he, he sends me a link to this place. It's a, it's a pretty dangerous place, to be honest. So I'm like, I'm out. I'm not going there. I'll go anywhere but there. So seriously, you're not going there? I'm not going there. Why? Because it's just too dangerous. I'm not going there. And the place that he picked was a pretty dangerous place. I mean, he made kind of the top 10, if you will, of, you know, more or less most dangerous places on planet Earth. So I'm out. But it made me think, like, what is the most dangerous place? So I start sort of Googling, start to figure out what is the most dangerous place. Let's take a look at a picture. Here's the most dangerous place on planet Earth. It is an island. It's beautiful. Uh, It's an island about 25 miles off the coast of Brazil. Uh, It's just commonly referred to as Snake Island. That kind of gives it away, doesn't it? Kind of see where this whole deal is is going. And so why it is such a dangerous place. So, First of all, the Brazilian government will not let you travel there. I mean, you you can't go there uh, and step foot on Snake Island. And the stories of what has happened uh, there are kind of legendary. But the truth of the matter is uh, Snake Island is infested with golden lancehead pit vipers, one of the most uh, dangerous Snakes on planet Earth. In fact, the, the vipers that are on this island, there are over 4,000 of them on the island. Their venom, these, these particular snakes on this island, their venom is even four times more potent than their counterparts back on the mainland. So this is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place. And so, like, none of us probably would say, you know what, that's where I want to go next year for vacation uh, because of its danger. But here's the thing that you may not realize, there are things all around us that are more dangerous than that right now. And they really are the lies that, that we believe that can so affect the trajectory of our life. And the enemy is the father of lies. And so as we think about the most dangerous place on earth, we're, we're going to look at four of what I believe are the most dangerous lies that we're really prone to believe and how they can affect our life and the consequences can be catastrophic. Now, you say, well, where are you getting these? We are studying through the book of Hebrews, who Hebrews was really probably a sermon uh, that was preached and then transcribed. Uh, The audience we know of of Hebrews were first century Jews who had converted to Christianity. Christianity. And they were facing a lot of persecution in in many ways. we'll see some of that today. So Hebrews is really a call to continue to persevere in their faith. And really what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's showing that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. Uh, He provides a greater rest in your life. Anything that you would think you would go back to, Jesus is greater than that. So he paints this amazing picture, really, of the supremacy of Christ and makes a big difference in their lives. And so... But we're going to take a look at at some of these lies that we're prone to believe, and and, and I think you'll understand it a little bit more when we jump into the text and see why we chose to do it this way. Let's look at the first lie. I think it's the most dangerous lie on planet Earth. I think this might be the most dangerous lie on planet Earth, and here it is. The Bible can't be trusted. And you hear it in various forms. You know, the Bible's just this ancient book that's full of contradictions, and you really can't trust the accuracy of Scripture. Scripture. And so that has been going on for thousands of years, and we see it in this uh, very first uh, followers, a uh, group of followers of Jesus Christ, that they experienced the same thing. But let, let's jump in, and you're gonna have to think a little bit here because this gets a little complicated. But let's look at Hebrews chapter four, verse fourteen. The the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, and that's what he's saying, Jesus is a greater high priest, because in this Jewish culture, the high priest was sort of like the man. Once a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies and offer sacrifices for the people. So So they understood that you couldn't have connection to God or forgiveness of sin without the sacrifice of a high priest. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is a greater, greater high priest. And he says, who has ascended, talking about Jesus into heaven. That's why he's a greater high priest, because he doesn't go into the presence of God. He lives in the presence of God because he is God uh, in the flesh, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. And he says, because of this, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So here was what, here's what's going on in this first century culture, and it's why I want to look at this passage, talking about Jesus, a greater priest. There were Jews who came to these Christians and said, you can't trust the message that you're hearing because Jesus cannot be both king and priest. In fact, that's what uh, Jews had believed and had taught for years, and 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 there's a lot of truth to that because they didn't want this conflict of interest. Because if you have this political king and then you have this religious priest, then that would create this conflict of interest. And and that that's right. I mean, that's where the 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 Crusades sort of come from. So so you wouldn't do want to do that. You can't have like a little league dad who's also the umpire because that just never goes never goes right. And so they were saying that Jesus can't be the Messiah because you say he's king and you say he's priest, he can't be both. There's an error in what you believe. You cannot trust the message. And so here's what I'm going to say. You're going to hear that for the rest of your life. Your kids will go off to universities and they'll be taught by someone that. You'll look at some article on the internet and you'll hear somebody saying, you know, the Bible cannot be trusted because it's full of errors. And they might kind of lay one of those out and we kind of get spun out. And that's what was happening with these first century Christians because it made a lot of sense to them. They're like, yeah, I never thought about that. And then The the Jews said this to them on top of that, they said, and Jesus, here's another reason why Jesus can't be the Messiah, because he doesn't come from the line of Levi. Jesus descended from the line of Judah, and so we know that the priest or the high priest would come from the line of Levi, and so to that, you cannot trust the message that you're hearing, and we hear the same thing today, and so all I'm trying to show you is nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Scripture has been under attack In fact, let me just just share this with you. We could talk all day about it, and some of you are like, please, no, that's dangerous. You know, there are over 350 fulfilled prophecies just in the life, birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over 350 Old Testament prophecies that find their fulfillment in Christ. So the evidence is there. But we can let what somebody says kind of spin us out and really become super dangerous in our life. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews does. So you're going to have to think, right, because this is about to get intense. Here's how he attacks this false teaching. If you were here last week, we we said every problem that you and I will face in our life, there's already a God-given solution. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know if you believe that or not, but that's true. Every problem that you're going to face in life, there's already a God-given solution. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to do that to a group Of Jewish Christians that were really starting to have some doubts. Can we really trust the truth of Scripture? Now, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, here's what he says. He says, In the same way Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Verse 6, here we go. And he says, In another place, and then we know this place is Psalms 110, so the writer of Hebrews is quoting David from 1,000 years earlier. Here's what King David said. This is a messianic prophecy. You guys still with me? A messianic prophecy, meaning this is a prophecy that's going to tell us about what the Messiah is going to be like when he comes. He says, you are a priest, talking about when Jesus comes, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And to that, we're like, Melchizedek, who? You know, who in the world is Melchizedek? Like if you grew up in church, you didn't like have a flannel board kind of flannel graph and Melchizedek didn't roll out alongside with David because he didn't kill any giants and there's no walls that fell down like Joshua. Melchizedek is a pretty obscure character in the Bible. In fact, his story is only mentioned one time, and that is in Genesis uh, chapter 14, all right? But he is a powerful, powerful character. And so let's look on over at Hebrews chapter 7. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is telling them. He's going back and showing them how the Bible answers the question that they're facing today, that you can't really trust, trust Scripture, right? So let me just say this. This may not be the most entertaining 30 minutes of your life, but we live in a post-Christian culture. Do you believe that? And it's not enough today to live in the culture that we live in to know what we believe. We have to know why we believe it. And we have to stand ready to make a defense for what we believe. And so that takes digging in and knowing the Word of God. All right? Okay, here we go. So let's jump in. Here's what the writer says in chapter 7. He's going to explain Melchizedek a little bit. He says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest. Now watch this. He says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem. First of all, what is Salem? Salem is modern-day Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, city of peace. He was king of Salem. Now, here's what we know. Melchizedek's story takes place in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek comes on the scene 900 years before David conquers Jerusalem. So before Jerusalem was even a city, Melchizedek was, which is like, hmm, that's interesting. I I remember in in college I was asked to write a paper on Melchizedek. I, I thought he was a... Character from Star Wars or something? I no no idea who he was. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High, so he's a king and a priest. He met Abram returning, or he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. Now let me give you the backstory on that. You guys, watch this. Here's what's happening in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham you grew up in church a little bit, you may know a little bit about Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. He's the father of faith. He's this pagan guy who's 90 years old, and God says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. That's a pretty big deal. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham, you're a nobody, but I'm going to show, God says, I'm going to show what I can do through the life of a nobody in a powerful way, and all the nations will see my power. Let me just make a a statement here that I think it's super important we don't do this, do, do this a lot. But I tell you what, any time we see political leaders turn their back on the nation of Israel, I think that's a pretty dangerous thing in Scripture because it's not that the nation of Israel is better than anybody else. That's not the point. It's just God wants to show his power through this small, insignificant group of, of people. And so he does that through, through Abraham. So Abraham, now back to the story, Genesis chapter 14. Abraham had a nephew, Lot. Lot's always getting into trouble in Scripture, and Lot gets taken captive by the kings of Sodom. So the first war in the Bible takes place in Genesis chapter 14. You guys still with me? Abraham rallies up his trained men, and he goes into the battle and defeats these kings of Sodom, and he takes Lot back. He gets Lot back along with all of this bounty that he gets from winning this battle. That's what's taking place in Genesis chapter 14. Now here's where Melchizedek shows up, right? So he met, Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him that's kind of interesting. Like Abraham's the man, right? He's the father of the nation of Israel. And this dude, Melchizedek, blesses Abraham. The only person that's blessed Abraham up to this point has been God. And so there's something pretty significant about this Melchizedek uh, character. Verse two, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. What? Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Now this isn't a message about about tithing. It's a message to show you the truth of God's word and how we can trust God's word. Abraham knew there was something significant about this Melchizedek, right? So Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem or king of peace. Now, sometimes we read over stuff like that in the Bible and we're like, that's cool, but we don't really dig in and and really think about what that means. He says, first of all, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness and king of peace. Listen, you'll never have peace without the righteousness of God. Does that make sense? Righteousness first, and then peace always follows the righteousness of God. Now look at verse 3, talking about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a person without father or mother. Like, we don't know who he comes from. We don't know who his people are. Is that fascinating? Why is that so important? We've already seen that Melchizedek was a king and a priest, right? And then we don't know who his descendants were. So, so Melchizedek, he doesn't come from the line of Levi. He's different than that. In fact, Levi hasn't even been born. It would be eight or nine generations before Levi is born. So without father, mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, it's like we don't know where he comes from. We don't know who his people are. It's like he just sort of comes out of nowhere, and then we get a little understanding why Melchizedek is there, resembling, that word resembling, it it can also mean like shadowing or imaging, right, or a foretaste resembling the Son of God, which is who? Again, 75% of the time the answer is in church, Jesus, right? Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So you're like, dude, you just took me on a journey for 10 minutes and I have no idea what we've just talked about. Here's what I want to show you. These first century Jewish Christians were beginning to believe a lie that the Word of God could not be trusted. And so what does the writer writer of Hebrews do? He goes back and shows them in the Word of God how it can be trusted, right? they don't have this problem anymore. I mean, they have other problems, but it's like it was just like this moment. They're like, "Aha! I get it." And listen, I tell you, that, that's just true for me. When you start seeing the Bible come together in such an amazing way, it just solidifies your faith. So let me let me try to summarize Melchizedek for you. God dropped the shadow of Melchizedek, this character, into the biblical narrative, into the pages of Scripture, two thousand and one hundred years earlier, before these these Hebrews would begin to struggle. In the book of Hebrews, these Jewish Christians struggle with doubt. He drops Melchizedek into the pages of Scripture 2,100 years earlier to leave no doubt when the reality arrives, right? To answer that question. Well, Jesus, you can't have a priest and a king. He just says, go back and look at Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek. He was priest and king. Well, he's got to come from Levi. Well, he doesn't have, we don't know who his father or mother are. Do you see that? And that's just one example of how the Bible can answer these questions. So we don't, you know, sometimes, let, let me just say it this way. Sometimes in the culture we live in, we have somebody who's got four degrees in our family, and they're smarter than everybody else in the room, and they think, you know what, to believe the Bible, to believe the truth of Scripture, you just have to check your brains at the door. And that's why I love these college students who are sitting over here. Listen, you don't have to check your brains at the door to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is evidence. If we take the time to study and know the truth, there is evidence to support the claims of Scripture. I can promise you that. And this is just one example of that, right? In fact, think think about this. I mean, this happened 2,000 years ago. People were taking shots at the truth claims of Scripture 2,000 years ago, and they're still doing the same thing today. But listen, we're still gathered here today studying this book. Something's up. Would you agree with that? Yeah. All right, here we go. Number two, here's the second most dangerous lie. Jesus really isn't that necessary, right? Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and to some of you are like, I like high priest, we don't really need a high priest. I'm not really into this whole thing. Like I don't, I don't go to confession anymore. I don't, I don't need that. Well, wait, wait, wait. Just a minute. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, what is, what is the purpose of a priest? Here it is. Simply, a priest is a mediator between sinful man and holy God. That's what a priest is, right? That's what he does, right? And so Jesus is the greater high priest. Uh, Jesus, Son of God. So let us hold firmly to the faith we. We profess. Now, let's think about this when it relates to priest because there's a couple big errors with this I just want us to think about just for a second. Uh, number one, there is a danger in, in worshiping a, a human priest or a human, a human religious figure. I, I, I tell people this all the time. Man, don't follow me. If you look at my life, you'll be disappointed. There's not anything in me that's different than anybody out there. I'm just a dude like every other dude in this room. It just has a, a teaching gift, right? But I have the same struggles that you, you, you have. I'm not asking anybody to be like me. I mean, what's really hard for me is I went to high school in this town. Like, people know me, right? We have people here that can say, I can stay out in the foyer. We can talk about him. Again, there's n- nothing in me that's trying to draw anybody to me. It's trying to point everyone to Jesus. Do you see that? There's danger in like worshiping some s- spiritual leader. But there's even a greater danger, watch this, there's even a greater danger in neglecting the high priest. Because here, here's, here's us as Americans, we think, you know what, I got this. I got this. I don't need anything. We're, we're sort of rugged individuals, you know, in the West, and we think we don't need anything. You know, I'm good, right? But you n- neglecting your high priest is the most dangerous thing that you can do in your life. If you think, you know what, because if you neglect a high priest, basically what you're saying is this. You're saying, I can come to God on my terms and my way. I don't need any help coming to God. That's pretty dangerous. In fact, if you study the Old Testament, you'll see that you wouldn't be the first person who tried to do this. Right? All the way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 16, there's this dude named Korah, which is a little bit of an unfortunate name. But 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 Korah, uh, it's when the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness after they leave Egypt. And and Aaron is the high priest. So they need to go through Aaron. And Korah's like, I'm not going through Aaron. I know that's what God said, and Aaron's a high priest, but but you go through me. And then Korah attracts a following. It's like, people, we don't, we don't need the high priest. We we got Korah. And Moses is like, everybody better back away from Korah. It was about to get, get ugly. And, and, and the earth swallowed up Korah, if you remember that that story. That always freaked me out as a kid in Sunday school. Like, wham, wow, that, that's, that's crazy. But, see, it was the arrogance of Korah to say, I don't need a high priest. I'm good on my own. In fact, the first king of Israel, let me just tell you another example of this. First king of Israel was uh, king, uh, king who? King Saul, right? King Saul, that was before David. King Saul had the look. He was tall, dark, and handsome right? And King Saul's about to take the children of Israel into battle against the Philistines, and he's scared. And so he knows, I need God's blessing before I go into battle. And that would just make sense, right? God, we want to make sure that, like, you're on our side here. And so, but Saul knows this. Saul knows that he can't go in and offer a sacrifice to the Lord, that the priest has to do that. So Saul is waiting on Samuel, who's the priest, to get there to offer a sacrifice. And Saul's waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally, Saul says, I'm tired of waiting. I got this. So he goes in, and he offers the sacrifices. About that time, Samuel the priest shows up and says, What are you doing? Saul, you can't, you can't do that. And 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 God takes the kingdom away from Saul after that act of rebellion. 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 6, and we're like, You're gonna go all day? This is the last one. I just want to show you. I want to show you how dangerous it is to say, I don't need a priest. I don't need a mediator. I can come to God on my own terms in my own way. I've got this. It's so dangerous. Like 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant for the, for the Hebrews, it's coming back into uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so they're celebrating and worshiping the Ark's coming back into Israel. And so they knew that only once a year the high priest could come into the presence of God. No one could touch that. And so they had to, to keep their distance. And so as the Ark has come, it's been carried on the back of some animals, and an animal stumbles, and a dude by the name of Uzzah, he reaches out and touches the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody remember what happened to him? Does because he says I don't I don't need a go between I've got this Let me just tell you something Watch this and we'll move on Jesus is a greater high priest and the only bridge between God and man because he's the God man Let me just say this to you again because this is not politically correct and in fact I've been preaching for thirty years now I tell you most people in the church don't believe this anymore. Most people in the church believe there are many ways to get to God. Most people in the church believe that that's such a prejudicial statement to say there's only one way to get to God. But can I tell you, here's the truth, there's only been one God-man, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and he is the only bridge between sinful man and holy God because he is the God-man. That's the uniqueness of our high priest in Jesus Christ, right? That's why Jesus made that statement in John chapter 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He's the high priest. Now, let's think about this. Even if you're a skeptic, and man, if you're a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here. Even if you just, you know, think the church is just all messed up and, you know, uh, just mind games and all that stuff, whatever. I'm just glad you're here. I want to show you something that I wonder if you'd be open-minded enough to, to contemplate. You see, without Jesus as a high priest, meaning that one who connects us to God, who gives us our worth and gives us our value and gives us forgiveness, without Jesus as our high priest, we're left to accomplishment, and the opinions of others to become our priest. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? That's like the craziest thing I've ever heard. See, here's the thing. Humanity, here's what's true about human beings throughout time. Humanity has always needed help in establishing their own worth. We've always needed some help, so we've looked to the way we look Our image, our accomplishments, right possessions, what we drive, what we wear, the relationships that we have with other people. Why do we look to those? Because we need help in establishing worth on our own. And what's even deeper than that is you are created with a longing for God. And sin has separated you. So your longing, your heart heart gives you away. Your heart is crying out for worth, but you try all these other things. I never will forget when I was in college, and there was like the coolest guy on our campus. He was a great athlete. He was a basketball player. He was the best basketball player on our basketball team. You know, just a nice-looking guy, just a cool, cool guy, you know. And uh, back in the 80s, if you wore cheap uh, sneakers or tennis shoes, we called them buddies. Anybody remember that? Like, if you had like a cheap pair of shoes, it was like, man, what are you doing wearing buddies? And this dude wore buddies. Like he's the coolest guy on campus, best athlete on campus, you know, came from a family who had, wasn't, like, wasn't poor, and he wore, like, $10 shoes from, like, Payless with the Velcro. I mean, if you buy your shoes at Payless, I'm not against that. But he had the Velcro. If you do have Velcro tennis shoes, I am against that. that you've got to draw the line. <laughs> it's a problem. Your grandkids are talking about you. And, and, and he wore those. And, I mean, he, just, he, just, he was just loud and proud walking around campus in, like, you know, $7, $8 tennis shoes. And I remember going up to him one day. We were walking to class. And I was like, Scott. Dude, what gives? And I won't forget what he said. He said, I don't need $100 shoes to tell me who I am. Pretty good. It made me feel bad. Right? No offense for wearing nice shoes, nothing wrong with that. But you know what he was really saying? It was the first time that I really heard that. It's the first time that kind of really dawned on me. He says, I know who I am, I know where my worth comes from. I don't need anything external to try to show me who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I thought that was pretty cool, right? I went out and bought some $7 shoes. It just didn't rock them as good as he did. But anyway, so so it's different than that. So let's look at these as we come to a close. These are life's most dangerous lies. The Bible can't be trusted. That's a lie. Jesus isn't really necessary. It's a devastating lie. It's exceedingly necessary. Number three Here's a lie, God doesn't really care about me. That's a lie of the enemy. In fact, the Greeks, for all of their pantheon of gods, the Greeks had a word that was sort of the defining characteristics or one of the defining characteristics of all the Greek gods. It was a Greek word, apatheia. And, and apatheia, just is where we get our word Apathetic. In other words, to them, that's what God's were just, God's existed, but they were just apathetic. They didn't care about what was going on in my life. And that may be where you are today. You sort of bought into that lie that God doesn't care. God doesn't see me. God doesn't know what's going on in my life and my circumstance and situation today. It just seems like He is apathetic. That's what the enemy would want you to believe about our God. But it's a lie. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Here it is. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. That word empathize means suffer along with us, one who sits in our suffering with us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin, right? Now, let me just say this, and I've said this all weekend long, and it's kind of been weird for people. I mean, all of us go through things in our life where we need somebody to sympathize with us, don't we? I mean everybody does. I mean for my family. This weekend on Friday, my grandfather passed away. And I mean, that's a tough deal for for, for all of us. And uh, you know Amy and I are down at his house and he just just died. And like you know, it's hard. It's just hard when you lose somebody you love, right? I mean, you've been there. And I, I just remember she's driving back, we're coming back to Murfreesboro and just getting texts from my buddies just say, man, I'm sorry, praying for you, just, just one right after another, and I appreciated that. It was very, very helpful uh, to me, to people just to... When someone sets in your suffering with you, that's a good thing, isn't it? Now, here's the problem with that. No human being can set in your suffering perfectly with you. Now, why is that? Because we all are affected by sin, and sin ultimately makes us selfish, doesn't it? Some people sympathize with others better, but no one does it perfectly. No human being does does it perfectly. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament. Some of you may may know this story. It's Hannah's story. Do you remember the story of Hannah? It's in in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and Hannah's barren. She desperately wants a child. Uh, She comes to the house of God early in the morning, and she's kneeling, and she's praying, and she's begging God for a child. And in fact, her mouth is moving, but no sound is is coming out, and she's just praying in her heart and her mind to the Lord. And so the priest comes out. Um, He's a man by the name of Eli. And Eli, you would think as the priest, he should be the most compassionate person around, right? You would think as the priest, he would come over and put his arm around Hannah and pray for her. And you know what he says? He said, what, are you drunk? Because he sees her mouth moving and no words. He thinks, he, she, he thinks she's drunk. And so he, he starts ridiculing her and calling her a, a, a drunkard, and she's just begging God for a child. And you would think, dude, like, like, what's your problem? Well, sin's a problem. So nobody can set in suffering with you perfectly except our ultimate high priest who can suffer perfectly with you. Why? Because he's experienced everything you have and more. Can I just tell you something, this one sentence, and I just just want it to be for somebody. Can I tell you something about Jesus? He gets you. He gets you. He understands more than anybody on planet Earth what you are going through. Why? Because he was. Scripture says he was tempted in every way that you are tempted. Yet he he did not sin. Right? He went through a death of a friend, rejection by friends, being misunderstood, ultimately pain, suffering, and crucifixion. He gets you. But here's one area that I just want to say that I think we sort of miss about this great high priest. Right, when people say, yeah, I know Jesus suffered, and so he understands suffering. But one aspect of this I think we don't think about very often. I'm almost done. You guys hang in here. I'm starting to lose you, right? Somebody said, you lost me a long time ago. But anyways, <laughs> do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is, is praying? This is the night of his arrest, right? And the Scripture says he is sweating drops of blood because of the intense agony that he's going through. Do you remember that account? And he makes this statement, he verbalizes this statement to the Father. He says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. You see, what was in front of Jesus was to walk out finally, this ultimate act of obedience where he would suffer and die. And he is disclaiming to the Father, if there's any other avenue, take it away from me. Because he's experiencing what? He's experiencing the difficulty of obedience. We don't talk about this in church very much. Now, watch this. Did Jesus obey? He did. I mean, he says after that, not my will, but what? Yours be done, right? Good. But I, I want to set in this, he understands the difficulty of obedience. Is obedience difficult? I mean, I'm asking. I mean, forget we're sitting in church and we've we got to kind of look spiritual. Obedience is difficult, isn't it? I mean, some of the things that the Lord Jesus calls us to in our life with our morality, with our money, with our attitudes, with forgiveness and all these things, are, they're just difficult, aren't they? But we have a Savior who sympathizes, who understands what that's like. He gets us like nobody else does. Let me just end this part and we'll close. Suffering in this life is unavoidable. I wish it wasn't, but it is. But what is avoidable is suffering alone. With Christ, we never have to suffer alone because we have a great high priest who suffers right along with us. Is that helpful? It's helpful to me. So let's close. Here we go. Most dangerous lies. If you're online, can you hang with us? This final one I think is important. The Bible can't be trusted. It's a lie. Jesus isn't really necessary. It's a lie. God doesn't care about me. It's a lie. And God is unapproachable, which is a lie. You see, that, that that's kind of what we think, and maybe even you today, you would say, yeah, I sort of get some of this stuff, but listen, if I could tell my story, like, I'm off limits to God. He, he wouldn't have anything to do with me because of my past, and so you're believing a lie from the enemy, a dangerous lie that says, for you, God is unapproachable, which is just not true. Let's take a, take a look at this photo from Buckingham Palace here. I mean, um, you know, Everybody's been watching the Netflix series and the crown or whatever, so there's like this emphasis in in the in, in the crown and the monarchy. And so if you go to London today and you want to see the Queen, like Amy and I can say, hey, we, we saw your show, it was awesome. it's awesome. Brady and Amy from Murfreesboro. We just we'd like to we just start drop by and meet you. You seem cool, right? You're not getting in. Would you agree with that? The Queen is unapproachable for people like you and me. I don't want to offend you, right? In fact, on Thursday night, I showed this picture, and a lady came up to me. She, she and her husband had just gotten back from London, and she had her picture taken beside one of these guys, right? Just really fast. She said, isn't this awesome? I said, no, it's crazy. I, that's nuts. She said, I know. That's what everybody around me thought. But see, that's what we think about God, and the enemy wants you to believe this. The enemy wants you to believe that God is unapproachable. But look at this verse. Last verse we'll look at, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Life-changer. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve and find grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve to help us in our time of need. Let us approach the throne of grace with what? With confidence. you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can approach God's throne with confidence. He isn't unapproachable. God became a man in Jesus so we could approach God without pretense, without limits, and without guilt and shame. Isn't that powerful? We do something here called Explore Lunch. It's a we're not doing it today. I'm just giving you an example. We, we have that because we want people who are new to the church or just really never got connected. It's kind of first step, come over and meet the staff. And our staff wants me to build my best behavior then, like, explore, please be good. Don't stink today. Whatever you do, right? These are new people. This is important. So I'm always nervous at Explore because you can tell they're sitting around looking like, oh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. And so it's our first Explore back after COVID. It's a big deal. We're out on the front porch. We've got people. We've got real life people here that are interested in the church. They're like, come on, close it. And... uh In the glass, behind where everybody's sitting in the glass, I see my grandson. He's banging on the glass. He's yelling, pop up. He's waving. I just forgot what I was doing. I just started walking over to the glass, talking to a four-year-old between glass. And we got, you know, guests sitting out here. And everybody's looking around like, he's just lost it. Let me just go ahead and warn you. If I'm talking to you and he walks up, I'm talking to him, not you. I'm sorry. At least you know up front, right? Why? Because he's my boy, right? Right. He's my boy, and he's got access. You have to wait. I mean, That's just what a grand granddad does, right? You can wait. Not him. We we kept both of them last night, and and so my granddaughter, you know, she's she's amazing, and she she's she's two, and she when she spends the night with us, she sleeps in our closet. It does, it's not that bad. It's it's Amy. It's better than that. She's got a little pack and play. And it's in our room. And, You know, we got like sound stuff going on, and we got like a 37-inch monitor beside the bed. We watch every move, and and Amy's up all night, like she's watching a space shuttle or something. And like, so we're going down, getting just drinking our coffee early this morning. It's time for her to wake up, and we can hear she starts moving around. She's like squirming, you know, so that means she's waking up. And both of us together, I know what Amy's saying. She's saying, "Please say nanny," and I'm saying, "Please say pop (laughs) pop." And you know what she said? Well, she said nanny, but I ran up this sta- Anyways, I ran up fa- faster than I'm like Usain Bolt. I ran up there, and I opened the door, and it's dark. And her hair is everywhere, man. It's all over the place. Her diaper is like 10 pounds. And she just raises those little arms, and she's a mess. And she says, pop, pop. And I said, girl, clean yourself up. I didn't say that, (laughs) right? I I, I just reached down and just picked her up and just held her as tight as I possibly could, and just kissed her and just told her how much I loved her. And she don't have to clean herself up, right? Her hair can be a mess. She's got three bottles in her diaper. You know the deal. I don't care because she's my baby girl, right? And she can come to me anytime she wants, and I, I can't help but think this morning. This is not the face of your father that the enemy wants you to know. He does not want you to know this nature of our God. He wants to keep you from understanding this because if you understood this, it would change everything in how you approach him. In fact, The enemy kind of wants you to think about the nature of God sort of like Snake Island, right? It's dangerous. He'd never love somebody like you. He's not necessary and you can't even trust him. You know what's interesting about Snake Island today? There are some people who are traveling there. You know who they are? Brazil is allowing some special exemptions, some licenses for people to now get on a boat, go out 25 miles and board Snake Island. They're research scientists. They're not going on there and avoiding snakes. They're actually going on to the island collecting snakes and milking these snakes of their poisonous venom. Why are they doing that? Because they've stumbled on something that they're using this venom for treatments and vaccines that are, in fact, saving people's lives today. Isn't that ironic? Is that ironic? In the world's most dangerous place, actually, it's a place that's life-giving. I just wonder if that doesn't resonate with you because the enemy doesn't want you to know that. He's deceived you with lie after lie after lie to keep you from trusting this great high priest. Because what He knows that He doesn't want you to know is there's life there. There's life there. Can we pray together this morning? Father, thank You for this moment in time. Thank You for the power of Your Word. Lord, there are real lies that are dangerous lies that are impacting our life on a daily basis. Father, teach us the truth... Help us to break free from these lies by knowing your word and knowing the truth and experiencing the life that only you can give so that we can find freedom and true life. In Jesus' name, amen.